Radio Mano Papachango. What's up, what's up, what's up? I got a cold, y'all. I don't know if it's a cold or if my body is just fucking sick of the smoke coming from the forest fires around Bend, Oregon. Uh, I've been breathing the smoke for the last three or four days and my body is in rebellion, specifically my nasal passages. Uh... Yeah, so anyway, I'm in Bend, Oregon. I'm about to head out, heading south. Going to camp along a river for a few days. Work on the introduction to the Tangentially Reading book that will be coming out this fall. We're going to do a big launch in early September. Stay tuned for that. Uh, Any of you who feel particularly touched or connected or that you have some experience with this podcast that you'd like to share, um, I'd encourage you to, uh, to send an email to Matt Owen. He's at uh, matt at misfit-inc.com. He's collecting um, kind words from listeners who uh, we would include in the, in the front of the book, you know, how they do that. We'll probably have, you know, a few blurbs on the back from famous people, maybe Joe and Duncan, I don't know. Um, but in the, we'd like to include some, some blurbs from you as well. Even if you're not famous, fame, it's a bunch of bullshit, as David Bowie once said, far more poetically. But um, yeah, this whole book thing is a community project. The art has been done by uh, a guy who listens to the podcast. Beautiful, beautiful works, by the way. Um, and we're going to, I think we're going to be auctioning them off or something. I don't remember what the plan is for that. Anyway, the good folks at Misfit are putting together a whole program. If you pre-order books, then you get, you know, depending how many you pre-order, you get uh, various types of bonus stuff. I think somewhere, I don't know how many books you have to order, but they're going to have the option of me sleeping in your driveway and, um, you know, pissing in your backyard. I think that's like one of the highest bonus levels that, that you can possibly aspire to. But in any case, Matt Owen, he's Matt at misfit-inc.com. He's collecting testimonials from readers to be included in the book. Um, what else? I'm in Bend, as I, as I mentioned. It's smoky, but this is a cool town. I really like Bend. I've been here a few days been staying with uh, Tom and Judy Campbell, who are lovely, lovely people, and, you know, continuing the tradition of meeting folks through the podcast. We're batting a thousand. I have yet to meet anyone through the podcast who I did not truly and legitimately uh, really appreciate as people. Um, So I don't know what that means. I don't know how that works, but Tom and Judy and... Their buddy Steve-O and uh, their other buddy Tom, whose last name I don't know, but he lives in a van down by the river. You'll know who I'm talking about. Everybody I've met in Bend has just been wonderful, really good people. So Tom and Judy 
are totally hooking me up for Burning Man. So if you see me at Burning Man, the bike I'm riding around on, that's from uh, Steve-O, Tom and Judy's buddy. The big fucking fur coat, fake fur coat that I'm wearing, that's from Tom. The goofy pants and shoes, the gold boots I'll be wearing, those are from Tom. My God, it's all from Tom. Tom has been so generous in, in hooking me up and explaining like what you need to do for Burning Man, what you need to avoid. So I've been running errands all morning. I bought a whole shit ton of water and fruit and limes and vinegar because apparently the you need vinegar to really clean that uh, desert dust off you. Uh, has something to do with alkalinity and base and acids and all that. I don't really know. But anyway... Um, They've been wonderful. So it's been really cool to hang out here and get to know them a little bit. So uh, what else can I tell you? Uh, that's probably it. And given the state of my nasal passages, that's probably all I should say. You can probably hear the mucus dripping into my voice at this point. So uh, I'm going to say thank you for your attention and your generosity and your kindness. And oh, by the way, those of you who listen uh, who support the podcast on Patreon may have come to expect videos of these various conversations. And I just wanted to tell you that I do have videos. I have a video of this one. Oh, I haven't even said who the guest is. This guest is Michael Wood, really cool guy, former policeman in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, just a really, really cool, smart dude. And I didn't really know what to expect. Since we did this podcast, I've learned that he's been on Rogan. I didn't know that um, going into it, or I probably would have gone and listened to what he had to say on Joe. But um, a friend of mine, Malcolm uh, Fleischman, told me about uh, Michael Wood and uh, recommended him for the podcast. And, you know, Malcolm's never steered me wrong. So we met up and recorded this, and I, I enjoyed it so much. I was expecting... You know, I was expecting like a an older former cop. You think former cop, I'm thinking a guy in his 40s or 50s who's, you know, got the pension and, you know, all that shit. But, um, but Michael Wood, he's a young dude, very energetic, very, very smart. And uh, as I think I said at one point in the conversation, like, fuck, I thought I was going to be the radical. I thought I'd be toning shit down not to offend this guy. But no, it's it's quite the opposite. He's got a lot of insights into what's going on in the American criminal justice system and what needs to change. And uh, that's uh, something I think we all need to be focused on in the United States. The land of the free. Fuck that, man. It's such bullshit. We've got more people in prison per capita than any country on the fucking planet. Think about that. We've got 4% of the population of the world and 25% of the world's prisoners are in this country. We say we value freedom. That's bullshit. We lock people up for nothing. My buddy Doug has a friend who got 30 years for having bought some cocaine. Got pulled over because he was driving while black. They found the cocaine. 30 years. Mandatory. No parole for, I think, 12, he said. He's been in the can for 12 years. This guy has no convictions other than this one instance. He's a father, a husband, and uh, 
yeah, this society just fucking shattered his life because he had some coke. And how many friends of that judge and that prosecuting attorney use coke? How many of their kids use coke? How many of them have used coke? It's bullshit. Practically everybody in this country above a certain age has tried cocaine or knows people who have. To keep treating these things as, as if as the way we treat rape and murder and kidnapping is just ridiculous. It's just fucking absurd. Anyway, that's Michael Wood and I talk about that. And he knows a fuck a lot, a fuck of a lot more about it than I do. So it was, uh, it was an experience for me to, to be with someone who really has been in the trenches and knows what's going on and, uh, has been on both sides of this battle. And, uh, yeah, I don't remember what I was getting to before I remembered to introduce Michael Wood. I'm just going to let this go because I'm bleary and weary and covered in dust and my head's full of snot. Anyway, this podcast is going to go up on Monday. Today's Thursday. This will, You'll hear this on Monday if you're a, an eager listener who listens as soon as it comes down um, or comes up or comes over or whatever, however it comes to you. Uh, I'll be on the playa at Burning Man. So that's where I'll be. Probably sneezing my ass off, but uh, I'll be on the playa going from smoke to dust, ashes to ashes. Hope you're doing well out there. And uh, yeah, thank you, as always. I mean, I know I say that every time, but the gratitude is real. It's eternal. It's fresh. And I feel it. Every time I meet somebody who listens to the podcast and I see how fucking cool they are, I feel it again. It's this weird, like I have this weird global friendship pool. It's, it's the strangest thing. But anyway, if you're hearing my voice, that means that you are probably, in my opinion, a really cool person. So thank you for being you. I'm going to sign off now. I'm going to play... I know it's a cliche because Michael Wood's from Baltimore and The Wire is from Baltimore and all that. But The Wire is such a great show. And they had this, uh, the intro song each season, they had the same song by a different artist, which was so appropriate because if you've seen The Wire, you know that each season is essentially it's a lot of the same characters. It's about the same city, the same moment in history, the same challenges, the same tragedies and difficulties and all that but it's looked at from a different perspective so the fact that they played the same song by different artists each season is really cool it's a song by tom waits it's called way down in the hole gotta keep the devil down in the hole maybe it's just down in the hole in any case um the version i'm going to play for you is my favorite they I and mean, all of them were good they had tom waits do it they had the is it the, the Everly Brothers or some other brothers? I forget. Um, they had uh, Blind Boys of Alabama. That's a fantastic version. Uh, and then this version, oh, they also had uh, Steve Earle, who, who was an actor in the series. He did a version. But this version is, called, is by Domage, D-O-M-A-J-E, I believe it's spelled. And if I'm not wrong, this is a collection of kids who live in, in Baltimore, who live in the, the projects where a lot of the uh, TV show was filmed. 
and they got these kids together because <clears throat> a lot of the actors in the in the series are from the streets of Baltimore. Um, yeah, was it Omar? No, Om not Omar. The guy, Shaky, the guy who pushes the grocery cart around, he was a street person in Baltimore. I forget what his name is, but he's a major character in the TV series. Anyway, um, yeah, this is Domaje down in the hole. And you know what? Screw it. I'm going to play Domaje now, and I'll play the same song by the Blind Boys of Alabama at the end of our conversation. Check it out. Way Down in the Hole by Tom Waits. When you walk through the garden, watch your back. Well, I beg you, pardon, walk the straight and narrow track. If you walk with Jesus, got fire and the fury at his command. Yeah, we don't got to worry. Hold on to Jesus and we'll be safe from Satan. When the thunder rolls, but you gotta keep the devil again i'm here in my uh, topanga living room two days before leaving on my big road trip last podcast i'll be recording in this space for at least a few months with michael wood who uh shout out to malcolm malcolm has introduced me to so many cool people malcolm from the young turks fleischman i think it's like <laughs> fleischman fleischman i don't know what's the difference <laughs> <One's>... <laughs> he knows who we're talking about he knows malcolm knows Anyway, um, yeah, we, I think I was ranting. I said, oh, I know what it was. On a, on a recent podcast, I mentioned how um, I was camping up around Yosemite with the van. His first like van road trip. And I was pumping gas, and a dude sort of came over, and he said, Dr. Ryan. I was like, hey, what? He's like, yeah, hey, you know, follow the podcast. And he, he's like, that's the van, because he's heard me talk about the van. And... Um, the guy was a probation officer, and he said, your podcast is actually really uh, popular. Like, all the guys down at the office, we listen to it, we talk about it. And I've heard, like, from other um, listeners that, uh, like, you know, like one guy was in a restaurant in West Virginia, and he was wearing a T-shirt that had the podcast name on it, and he walked by a table of four, like, hard-ass-looking cops, you know, like on duty crew cuts and the whole thing. And as he walked by, one of the cops looked at him and was like, good podcast. 
It's like, whoa, what the fuck? Why, why is he looking at me, you know? So it's surprising to me that it's popular among law enforcement because I kind of give some shit to law enforcement sometimes. Anyway, that's why Malcolm was like, hey, you guys should talk because uh, Michael knows what he's talking about and you don't. So, <laughs> so welcome. That's a two minute uh, welcome. Well, that's an interesting introduction. It's not like something Malcolm would say that would always be awkwardly uh, white, which I tell him is like awkwardly white culture that around him surrounds is this awkward whiteness. Yeah, but he uh, comes from it in such a pure place that is yeah. so charming. He's almost that, Mormon. Yeah, you can't help yeah. but love him. He's you know? so Jewish. He's almost Mormon. <laughs> yeah, he's an interesting dude. I really like him, so I'm glad that that, that yeah. took place. How did you meet? You met him when you did do the thing on the Young Turks. Yeah, I did in 2015 or so. Uh-huh. And I did the interview with Jenk right. on right. the first one about policing that people still kind of go back to, and it's actually a big frustration because a lot of what we go back to is the uh, exploitation of the violence, and they want to hear the stories, which are kind of, I'm not really into the history mm. of why policing is bad. It is bad. Right. So I want to keep trying to get us towards solutions and right. for, where, where our future lies, but we seem to always go back to this, Mike was a cop, let's hear about these dramatic stories of police abuse. It's like, yeah. more like the Hollywood movie that right. actually getting something accomplished. So what, uh, speaking of how media treats policing, uh, you being from Baltimore, you were on the force in Baltimore, right? Uh, what's your take on The Wire? Is that a more or less accurate look at what's going on? Well, I certainly get that question. That's yeah, funny. I'll bet. Um, yeah. The Wire is an extremely accurate window, but it's a narrow window right. to a very small portion of what Baltimore really is. Huh. I would think the school season is the most accurate portrayal mm. of what Baltimore is from a wider perspective. Uh, but I'm in the camp now that I think it has probably done more harm. Really? It has good in perpetuating myths of what people think about Baltimore and the people there and what ghettos are really like. Huh. So what, what's inaccurate about the depiction of, of ghettos? It's not that it's inaccurate. It just makes us stereotype them into that narrow window that it portrays. So oh, even I though you see Avon Barksdale walking through uh, Gilmore Homes or whatever, and that's the, the view you get of those projects, 99.9% of the other time that you weren't looking through that small window mm. was a camp, uh, a, cook, a cookout with everybody, right. was kids right. playing basketball, right. it was an entirely different environment that you, was largely dismissed. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think that that's probably true of most media. I mean, for example, I, uh, this isn't really about media, but I was reading a thing the other day about a woman's prison and, uh, they, the author of the piece made the point repeatedly that 95% of the women who were in the prison had been abused, uh, sexually or otherwise. Right. Um, and I immediately thought, Okay, I understand why that's relevant, but why haven't I read how many men in prison were abused? Okay, yeah, I mean, I get on this a lot. I've had some rather, uh, I wouldn't want to say controversial, but it's just because it's kind of breaking up what we accept as conventional wisdom, and we kind of think that those things apply. But without question, more men are raped in this country 
or sexually assaulted in this country right. than women are. And that's a hard pill for us to swallow, but that's because of prison and our mass incarceration rates right. and what we throw into it. And right. when you think about how we treat that, when we send a male to prison and they've done something bad, as a society, we rejoice that they will be sexually assaulted in prison. Right, whereas if it were a woman, that would be considered cruel and Imagine and torture. Jailhouse Rock was about banging a young uh, woman who looked right. like a teenager right. in, a, in a women's prison. Right. Um, right. But everyone goes along singing Jailhouse Rock, which if you don't know, look up the lyrics to Jailhouse Rock. The song is about a very young looking uh, inmate coming into the prison and everybody's all ready to rock his jailhouse, do his Jailhouse Rock. I so it's a prison that. rape song and we all Jesus. accept that without a question. Right. But yet, if there, there's that paradigm there where I don't even talk about this much because it mm. sounds like I'm a, a male defending, uh, yeah, like projecting. I don't no, know but I, I don't. I don't think either one of us is coming from that place. And in fact, you know, when when I introduced the topic, I wasn't even really thinking about uh, prison rape. I was thinking about the fact that people who end up in prison generally are hurt as children. Mm-hmm. Right. Men and women, boys and girls. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, they, you know, they're they've got bad parenting or their parents died or the, you know, foster care there. But there's a you know, it, what, the reason I thought of it is you said, you know, 95 percent of the time in those projects, it's everything's cool. There's no Avon Barksdale. There's no gang turf war going on. And yet the TV cameras aren't interested in that. They're just mm-hmm. interested. And so we get this distorted look, you know, and it's like how many people end up in prison you know, 99% of their lives, they're fine. You know, we judge, what's the line? We judge heroes by their greatest moments and criminals by their worst moments, yeah, sure. right? Absolutely. I mean, I've done tons of shit. If I happen to have gotten caught doing it, I I mean, I've, I've carried hallucinogenic drugs across international borders, you know? Sure, and that's uh, probably... Or, allegedly. Yeah, allegedly, somebody <laughs> said. Um, I, I think that, that paradox or that difference is is one of kind of my openings hmm. to seeing what the system was, was doing because if you sat there when I would sit there as a narcotics detective interviewing somebody that we had arrested a dealer and the more you get into them and get to know it's like well I mean oh man this kid didn't do anything that I didn't do right the difference between me and this kid is that I got caught Right, and then so why did I get? Why did I not get caught, and why did he get caught? Or you get caught at different times in your life. You got caught when you're 14, and there was a diversion program, and you know, I mean, I've talked to lots of people who are like, I was going down the criminal path, and then some shit happened, and I decided to become a cop instead. You know, I I was just with a friend a, a week ago, and we were talking about her family. One half of her family is cops, judges. The other half of her family were high-level um, drug kingpin sort of people, 20 years, you know, like big, big sentences. And I said, well, there must be a lot of tension in your family. She's like, nah, it's the, they're the same. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, half of them have badges, the other half are in prison. But they're the same people, basically. The, largely, uh, one of my confessions is that I treated it like a sport. Mm. I was... That was their team. That was my team. Right. And kind of it weirdly protected me from excessive use of force because like to me, that would have been like a penalty. You know? Right. We, uh, like we played the game. Right. We were both had our roles and sometimes I won and sometimes I lost. I think the wire is really good at showing that, sure. you know, yeah. when, when I, I'm even uh, what's his name? The, the, the dude who, who lit, 
who sort of preys on the drug dealers. Um, Omar. Omar. Yeah. It's all in the game, you know. You know, it's like we're just doing this together. It's a dance. We need each other in a weird way. So how long were you on the force? 11 years. 11 years. Uh, went in. How and- old are you, man? You look 27 <laughs> years old. What the all, fuck? I get this with all the yeah. time. So uh, I'm 37. You're 37. And... I went in. What about all that stress? What happened? There's no lines on your face. Just, um, I, I don't know. It's just genetic. <laughs> just <luck>. genetic. <laughs> don't, don't attribute it to anything that I have, I have done. All I've right. probably done things that don't deserve to <laughs> still, still look in decent shape. You'll, when, you, when you hit 40, you're going to like age super rapidly. Who knows? And, and when you're saying that, it may be true because I'm <laughs> one of those that talk trash at 30 uh-huh. about how your body doesn't fall apart at 30. Uh-huh. And I think it was about 32 when... It'll oh really? Fall apart. You can't heal anymore, and everything's injured. Uh, yeah. So, anyway, hopefully there's no truth. Yeah. No, I'm just talking shit. Know, Don't listen to me. I know, but you may be jinxing me. There. Um, so you're you're on the force for 11 years in Baltimore the whole time. In Baltimore the whole time, I went in after the Marine Corps. Mm. So did my four years in the Marine Corps, and then processed into Baltimore. You were posted overseas. No, I was in a, well, I mean, I did go overseas, but I was in a FAST team, which is a forward deployed uh, anti-terrorism security team. And so oh, right. you don't even do the theater of warfare. Right. You do like protection around the globe. Hostage situation. So anything like that. So they're huh. an instant response team. Right. So that was like a, it was a weird separation from the military. I didn't feel like part of the Marine Corps in there because you're always with the Air Force or with the Navy, yeah, yeah. just a small unit. Um, That's funny. You're, I'm having lunch today. You might meet him, actually, with a guy named Don, who was on the podcast recently, who he's probably 20 years older than you, but he was also in the forward deployed Marine Special Forces. Yeah, they were called something at that time. Yeah, like, I know, some acronym. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I didn't even know it existed. Now you're the second guy in like a month that I met that was... Yeah, I mean, the United States military is everywhere. I mean, it's... Everywhere. They're I protecting I wonder what a map us. looks like if you look at all the bases across the protecting globe. Protecting freedom. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so... <Like a> track. <laughs> all right, so, so you, you do the Marines. When you came out of the Marines, were you a true believer? In... In protecting freedom, in that America's God's country, no. defending no, all no, that no, is no. good. And no, I mean, I didn't stand for the anthem by towards the end of my police, my military career. Mm. You start to see it as bull crap. Right. Um, you're you're filling the needs of a bigger global context that has nothing to do with justice and right. has to do with a empire and with control and dominance. And we see that now right. because you can't use propaganda against us once we started getting those cell phones in our hands. You think so? Uh, yeah, totally. I don't mm. think we're, the military is going to have a really hard problem in, in 15 years. They're not going to be able to convince my daughter that some somebody in Syria is their enemy. It's, it's, you're not going to be able to pull it off. I mean, we can face time them and hmm. we can associate with uh, we go back and forth on twitter with people right now hmm. that are sitting in russia right. so i mean it's you're just not going to convince us that we're enemies i think that's all like this whole russia 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 thing that red scare that's going now uh, again that's been revived you're not going to get young people to just buy into this too much because it's like uh, what do you mean like hmm. they're not our enemy like, hmm. it's just not going to seed in like, right. this kind of propaganda right that's that's interesting. I hope you're right about that. It certainly seems like the the internet and sort of this new media, even this podcast right here, is uh, an example of 
the way international borders and are much more permeable and things move around and nobody can control. Yeah, so my scholarly yeah. work is in management. That's where I went yeah. to for to study my PhDs in management education. So I went that route specifically because of recognizing those kind of contexts and understanding that in real reality, it's these nation borders and everything don't really apply. It's these these global uh, corporations that really mm. have the power and the dominance. Right. It's Exxon and their global footprint is much more influential than the American footprint from its borders and, and national scope. Yeah. So we have to think of everything differently, even like yeah. policing. If we have a system of policing which can improve a society then like any other theory or methodology it should apply anywhere hmm. so it doesn't matter whether we're in america or we're we're in sudan all of these things we need information from everybody because all of this feeds in this global context right a universal type of thinking right yeah oh good point so let's just, I, I just want to get Before your tra- trajectory. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's called tangentially speaking, right? We can like go off into a million different directions, but just to give a little structure so people know like clearly who you are and where you're coming from. So you, you did your four years in the Marine Corps, you processed out of the Marine Corps straight into the police force. Right. And it takes a little while because it's yeah. time to get hired. And- Is that a pretty common thing? People coming out of the military going into police? Um, it's hard for me to say. I don't know what the numbers are on that. Um, I come from a very encapsulated environment because mm. I was infantry and then in a special unit so i in the marine corps to begin with so i'm kind of pre really pre-selected into my own bubble of awareness you come from a military family no 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 i mean um my grandfather was drafted uh, didn't see combat so uh, like i mean that's the closest vietnam that i have uh, i guess i would have been vietnam yeah, i don't know yeah. <laughs> how much i cared korea <laughs> whatever really so it wasn't like a family thing no uh, no no um I'm the first uh, college educated. Where did you grow military. up? So in the Aberdeen, um, Abingdon, Edgewood area, it's a suburb of Baltimore, just to the northeast, yeah. uh, just to the outskirts. So it's mixed race, mixed income. You went to college before the Marines? Or no, after? no, no. I went into the Marine Corps at 17. So uh-huh. I signed the contract when I was 16. Why? Um, I felt like I needed some discipline and guidance and a direction. Were you getting in trouble? I didn't get in trouble a lot. I mean, sure, I was kind of a troublemaker type of kid. I was an instigator. Always was an instigator. Right. <laughs> it doesn't surprise people that we're having this conversation that knew me right. 30 years ago, probably right. still. So um, that that just ended up being, I knew I couldn't focus and achieve at college at that time. Mm. I mean, it could be the fact that I was a 16, 17-year-old male. I was fueled with hormones and stupid. Right. So I knew I needed something that was more grounded. Right. And I thought uh, the military was that path. It would get me to college where you didn't have money, such mm. a type of housing and right. public assistance. So uh, your path, that's part of like the manipulation of the classes is that you take these people from poor classes and you feed them this fish hook of education, this little bait of education, right. of national pride, of you're a hero if when you're 17 you allow us to train you to be a killer for our having right. oil profits. Right. Uh, so that, that's like one of our manipulations they do to cops and to military. Uh, luckily, that I, I did at least take that bait for whatever moral hit that was in the big picture. And did translate that to doing college while I was in the police department. So I did my bachelor's while I was 
in police. Oh, really? Yeah. So online, huh. you could do that. Yeah. Um, I wish it would have had online when I was in the Marine Corps. I think I would have right. knocked it out then. Right. And gotten even a little bit further. Right. Cool. So, so you come out of the Marines. Uh, you go into police Baltimore. in Baltimore. Because if you're going to be in the military, you go in the Marine Corps. And if you're going to police, go to Baltimore. All right. right. So it's sort of a it. go to the front lines kind right. of thing. Right. Um, so it's not just the fact that you're from that area. It's that you sort of saw it as a challenging area to, to be working. I saw it as the place where I could get the most drug chases, gun shootouts. Uh, so you want chases. you wanted to go into narcotics? That was your no, not narcotics. I think I would have envisioned myself more something like a uh, Haida, which is a uh, uh, high level drug cases, or something like a rat team, an regional auto theft task force, where you do the car chases and you pit and stuff. Like that's the stuff. They're I actually called rats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <That's fucking laughs> two T's though. Two T's. Oh yeah, yeah. It sounds better. Sounds better. Yeah. Uh, so what, what was your sense of policing? I guess your family didn't have cops either. No. And you have a weird culture when you grow up in like a white rural area. Uh, yeah. I kind of tell people often what you hear in those areas is that those cops are good because they keep the monkeys in the zoo, uh, in Baltimore, right. racism undertones right, and right. stuff. So that, that kind of has this background fueling that justifies that allows you to blind yourself to what is really going on right. when, when policing comes. So I thought like what you had to do was, was just be a robot. So like, don't see racism. Uh, don't, don't like judge people by, by their, by their, you know, whatever prejudices you have, mm. just go do your job and do your job as professionally as possible. And that means you are doing what the people want because all of this has been filtered through our system of electing these officials and these officials are telling me what to do. So you're still serving the people and you're being a hero. Right. right. So you want, and at the same time I got to have fun. Yeah. It's active. It's like you said, it was a game. You seem like an athletic kind of guy. You probably, yeah, you know, that's the place to your strength. Right. So you, you go into the police academy, I guess, right. You got to do, what is it? Nine months, six it months, was like eight months, eight months. Yeah. You do that, you come out and then how, how do you decide or how is it decided where you're going to go? What division you're Oh, well, the police department is largely like the military. So they do something like ask you, where would you like to go? Mm. And you give them three choices. And then they assign you to one of the three choices that you're the exact opposite of what you wanted. Uh-huh. Nice. <laughs> so, right. um, I wanted to be in a particular place and they sent me on the exact other side of the city. But you start off in patrol always. Right. Um, and the first thing we did is we started from a thing called district stabilization unit, which is a foot patrol, uh, community policing. And right. so when they say, like, you see foot patrol officers, what we need is more foot patrol officers. What this is in reality is throwing somebody like me who was a rookie police officer with no supervision, just graduated the academy. I teamed up with another Marine and another Army guy and another Marine that were on another team together. And we would just run around amok with no supervision, uh, locking up. Uh, drug offenders right. and that is where we were situated and that was in Gilmore Homes walking around oh, in what was right. supposed to be our community stabilization what it really was is just a bunch of people that didn't know what they were doing locking up what they could the easiest lockup that there is right. in a very poor area like that which is a drug offense right. so we went around locking up those drug offenses and then obviously um, if people know the history of Baltimore I come back full circle because Gilmore Homes is where Freddie Gray was killed Hmm. Right. How different was that part of your career? Do you think? I mean, you you weren't overseas. 
but the guys you were with, I guess, were, right? A couple of them. Some of them. Yeah. How different do you think that activity was from what they were doing in Iraq or Afghanistan as an occupying army? Oh, it's, it's no different. I mean, it just yeah. takes you a long time to realize that. I think some of them saw that a little bit sooner. Uh, I, I saw a lot. I mean, my guys would just quit early and just right. go on to some other. What they would do is they would kind of do the moral compromise and go to like a, a far out rural county where you just end up doing like traffic enforcement and stuff right. like that. So you're part of the problem, right. but you're not that extreme right. part of the problem. So there's some kind of compromise. Every time I see one of these, you know, these police shootings that, I don't know if they're more frequent now or they're just getting no more media attention. You think it's just more because people have phones and, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, you know, I think like if these guys, you know, these just last week I, I uh, interviewed um, an ex-Marine who has a um, in, in, uh, nonprofit organization where he's working with um, vets who have PTSD and trying to get them ayahuasca treatment. I don't know if you're familiar with ayahuasca. It's, yeah, there's a lot of people doing that uh our nonprofit is trying to tie a lot of that together. Oh, really? To do some of the things because coming from Standing Rock, that was one of our big lessons. Oh, yeah. So there I don't you know. Go. I mean, going into what Standing Rock was like. Yeah, another, we got to talk about that. <laughs> that's yeah. That's another sidetrack. But don't don't let me forget, or you know, you make sure to mention it. Do you know Josh Fox, by the way? Of course, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, he's a good friend of mine. He's been on the podcast. Uh, Are you going a couple to times? I was there last year. Are you going to go this I, year? I don't think I am. I'm going to Burning Man. It's right the same now. weekend. Okay. You should go. It's great. And we can okay. talk about this off the podcast because, okay. unfortunately, the 100,000 people listening to this were not invited to that party. <laughs> Poor people. It's a great party. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, Josh, shout out to Josh Fox. He's, he's a great guy. Um, what are we talking about? Uh, oh, oh, when I see these police shootings, you know, and the PTSD and, you know, I'm thinking like, here's this guy. He's trained in t- how to be an occupier, how to be in someone's country that doesn't want you there to be suspicious of everyone. Even a little kid could be coming up to like playing a device under your car. Right. And then suddenly he's in Baltimore, or he's in the Bronx or he's in wherever he is. And he's got that mentality. All his training, all his experience is everybody here wants to kill me. I'm not welcome here. I got to be badass and, and, you know, expect the worst at all times. That's a fucked up approach to policing your own country. Well, that's our approach in a global and a bigger concept. But I don't actually we don't have the data because it just doesn't exist. But I do not believe that military former military members are more likely to engage in excessive force than the yeah. average person. Right. They are They're better, better trained because we are in an occupying reality of policing. Right. What we won't accept is that policing is also the same occupation. Right. So they and we have more restrictive rules of engagement overseas than we do in at home. So you can shoot uh, an American with fewer repercussions potentially than shooting someone overseas. That's kind of like the wrong framing. Um, In overseas, we, you have to be shot at, you have to have a justification, some kind of reason. Literally what is codified into American law from its very basics is that any violation of the law is, is, can result in your death without, without 
question. That is the way the law is codified. So whether, even whether that's a parking ticket, eventually that ends in either you comply or you die as its fundamental layer of what our criminal justice system is. Mm. And then on top of it, when, when we look at what the officers are doing, their legal codification is of, was originally in Graham versus... Connor? Graham? Uh, Tennessee versus Gardner? Maybe? I don't know. I'm throwing out names now because I can't remember exactly which one it is. But what it, what it ends up looking was originally is that an officer that was in reasonable fear was able to, of their life or someone else's life, right. and the life of somebody else. Then that kind of got stretched out to be that when reasonable was then to be judged by other officers. And then what in Freddie Gray's uh, defense, tra- the, their, their accused killers, he, that got transferred even further to mean that the average officer is re- deemed reasonable. So now the average, whatever the average officer deems as a justification of fear means they can kill you. So what we then kind of what we then learned, and you can see where like the command staff and everybody was improperly trained. Nobody took any uh, accountability for any of the actions. The average officer is unreasonable. So we have codified now that an unreasonable person can determine whenever an officer can shoot and kill somebody. So that is why when you're sitting there going, I don't understand how you can't get a conviction for killing Philando Castile, because we have literally codified into the law that anything that that officer does is justifiable. Why do you think that is in America? Why are we so, I mean, I know you can go to Guatemala and it's fucking worse, but like I live in Spain most of my life. And I think this is one of the things that, that, you know, made Malcolm put us in touch with each other. Because I'll often talk about how Spanish cops are so cool, so relaxed. And there are two things I, that I've thought of over the years that sort of feed into this. One is, the, well, maybe three things. One is that they're not military. They don't have that military background. They don't have that sort of experience of hostility uh, coming at them. Um, the second is that Spanish people aren't armed, so they're not worried about getting shot every time they pull someone over for speeding, so they can afford to be more relaxed. And the third is that, as I understand it, and it'd be interesting to hear what you say about this, if, if you have any knowledge of this, my understanding of that the structure of the American legal system is that it's law-based. So if you break the law, you're wrong. Whether you bother anyone or not, whether there's a victim or not, doesn't matter, you broke the law. Whereas in Spain, cops won't approach you unless someone complains. So, for example, I grew weed in Spain for years when it was very ambiguous as to whether it was legal or not. But I knew I never had to worry unless my neighbors were bothered somehow, right? If people are coming to my apartment with, you know, suitcases full of money and guns and, you know, causing trouble. And then I'd I'd have an issue. But if I had three or four plants out on my terrace, I'm not bothering anybody. Nobody cares. And if somebody actually called the cops and said, hey, this guy's got three marijuana plants on his terrace, the cops would be like, is it bothering you? In what way is this bothering you? Otherwise, what the fuck you want us to do, right? So there's no... My feeling in the U.S. is that the police force is structured as my enemy. 
They want to catch me. They want to fuck me up. And it's not that they want to protect the, the peace or they want to just make sure everybody's getting along all right. You know what I mean? There's like a fundamental difference. If they see me going 10 miles per hour over the speed limit, even though it's three o'clock in the morning and there's nobody on the road and like I'm there's zero danger to anybody. He'll still pull me over because he gets some fucking bonus or I don't know what the fuck it is, you know? So is that accurate or am I full of shit? um, No, what you are is an average person that's looking at the outcomes of a system and you don't like the outcomes of the system. The problem is within the system, not in worrying about the outcome. So what you're talking about, changing those things, are mitigating factors that you can put to judge the, to kind of fix some of the outputs of this system that you don't like. But those are are why I shed a lot of these ideas that we want to get into and reform with like living in the arm or disarming that they aren't military, things like that. Those are all trying to work within a system we know to be unjust. So we have to create a new system. So you think it's a structural issue? We're not going to tweak it a little totally here and systemic. there. systemic. So this is right. like I thought it was on professionalism is where I started from. Right. So I wrote a 518-page guide on how to be the exact perfect police officer within the laws with the best practices that we completely know. Was this for your dissertation or something? No, this was. I did this on my own time because I recognized when I was a commander that our people didn't know their jobs well. And I really thought that it was because we just weren't being professional enough. Hmm. And so even when I laid out what perfect professionalism would be, that was still a disastrous system. Hmm. So even what you're talking about, we're saying where they aren't military, they don't have a military mindset. Well, no, I mean, like, so military people come out with military mindsets and they work at UPS. It's not, it's not like the military variable Mm. can be taken out of this equation from either side. You will have military people at the end of of a police shooting and at the beginning of a police shooting. It's it's, it's a variable that we can throw away. It's it's not actually the But don't you, I mean, I see what you're saying. And and, and I don't mean to say that a military mindset is necessarily a negative thing. I think there are a lot of really positive things about it. Um, You know, teamwork and uh, respect and self-respect and, you know, discipline, all these things are, are wonderful things. But what I mean is this, this, this sort of having been steeped in us versus them. Right. That's, you that's what I mean. You don't get that. And the UPS guy's not into, thinking that way. You don't get that until you get into policing, though. Policing is where you learn us versus them. You don't think and these it, guys in Iraq are getting us versus them? Do the people them? in Iraq run around with a slogan that says sometimes it's, it's justice and sometimes it's just us? Do they say, I'd rather be judged by six or judged by 12 than carried by six? Do they run around calling themselves the thin blue line? No, they don't. This us versus them is entrenched. They're not in an adversarial court system. So we're in an adversarial court system, which means you go after the defendant to seek a guilty plea, whether or not they're actually guilty once it gets to that point, because you're in an adversarial court system. So this us versus them is, in, is, is reflected in the military, but it's highly entrenched mm. in, the, in the police department. And my, my best guess is I think that policing is the ultimate... Uh, expression of our society. The military is a deep expression of it, but the military is where it really comes home and we show what we are as a country. And that when I, when I say that we can dismiss all those things that you're talking about, it's because of the system. And American policing is very different even as a system 
from what you're talking about in Spain. So let's get into the system. What would you identify as the sort of fundamental principles of the American policing system? Okay, so there's system? three fundamental principles of American policing. So I figured this out doing my master's work uh -huh. um, in management, trying to chase the incentives back and forth. Because what I want you to understand, everybody to understand, is that police are employees. Right. They respond to incentives and disincentives like any other employee. Sure. So when you're saying, why are they acting this way? It is because they are incentivized to act this way by right. their management. Sure. The management you voted in. Right. So this isn't working, that system. But what American policing does, um, be, it, it comes from uh, original roots uh, in the late 1700s from Boston and in the north to catch runaway slaves. That's our historic starting point of American policing. Mm -hmm. And what that growth has done is mean that policing now and probably always has done one of three different things. And that is the creation and maintenance of oppressed classes and then the extraction of resources from those oppressed classes in order to fund their own oppression. Uh, the best example of that you were kind of alluding to earlier where either go out and police are put in high crime areas which are poor areas and then poor is an oppressed class. We have other oppressed classes, black, brown, uh, different religions, things like that. So we put police in those areas because they're problem areas to us. And then we do regressive taxes like, mm. like a, uh, a parking ticket or mm. a common citation for loitering going down the road, which $35 to you or I is probably going to be like whatever. Right. But to them, that's a decision of whether they have dinner or not. And if they can't pay it, then there's fees then added will, on. Court then you fees. will die. Okay, yeah, so if yeah. you do not comply along right, that line, right. you will die eventually right. without complying. To and system. where are you going to get the 35 bucks? Right. Right. So that's what it looks like in modern context. Um, then the second thing... You're a radical motherfucker. <laughs> You're dangerous. I'm normally the one who's saying shit like this and the guest is getting all uncomfortable. Okay. You're, all right, you're going there. All right. So the second thing <laughs> is uh, the valuation of elite property over the lives of the oppressed classes. Right. Um, a good vision of that I, I use all the time is if you look at the uprising in Baltimore, you will see the police surrounding the CVS with their shields facing the people who are paying those actual taxes and funding them. And you will see the uh, CVS being protected while at the whole time the culture around us is saying, why are they burning down that neighborhood? Why are they burning down that CVS? And at the whole time, the only person who ever died during that entire exchange was Freddie Gray. He was a member of the uh, oppressed classes and we have evaluated the property of CVS over the life right. of Freddie Gray. Right. By the way, we are spending our, our funds and diverting our resources. Yeah. The third thing is the continued genocide of the Native American people. And you will see that encapsulated in full aspect with Standing Rock, where we clearly see all three of these principles laid out as uh, the taxpayers of North Dakota are directly funding the private army and protecting the profits of energy transfer partners, a yeah. private and elite company. Right. Yeah. Going through land that was given to that tribe, right? That well, Land that they were allot it right. and allowed the, to yeah, maintain yeah exactly given to is kind of a funny sure. way to put it yeah i'm going to steal your car but i'll i'll let you keep your kid in the back seat yeah okay. yeah um yeah so do you want to open the door it's getting yeah it's getting uh it's getting stuffy in here and i don't want to turn on the ac so now we'll we'll get to hear uh birds and can you put some water in here Toots? absolutely yeah 
Um, so before we get to Standing Rock and your your time there and your involvement in that whole thing, staying in Baltimore, you said you were a commander. So you started off as a, a neighborhood uh, football. So the path would have been the DSU, the District Stabilization Unit, which was a few months on foot yeah. walking with a partner in those areas, that high crime areas that you're assigned to, yeah. and then given a directive to go get stats, which is right. enforcement. Right. And then I went to patrol in the Southern District on midnight shift. Right. And that that was a weird thing, being in a city at those hours yeah. uh, all the time for a few years was quite an incredible experience with a plethora of unimaginable stories. Really? Um, and, like, and was highly enjoyable to me. Mm-hmm. I actually really enjoyed my time in the Southern District. I was a patrol officer handling re- regular people with regular issues. And it was this weird place where you have Johns Hopkins, uh, doctors and students right next to a traditionally really poor uh, white class. And then the uh, area where like Freddie Gray is West Baltimore right next to it. And all three of those things interchange in a, a wonderfully glorious yeah. dynamic of social <laughs> I'll experimentation. Bet. I'll bet. That's a good way to put it. Shitstorm would be mm-hmm. another word for it. And it's glorious. <laughs> yeah, glorious shitstorm is on the horizon. Uh, so, so obviously there was uh, a moment in your career where things changed. Well, I think it's slow. So you, you slowly realize how ineffective you are. After I went from patrol in the southern, I went up to the northern for a while. I wanted to get out of patrol. Um, one of my first like dramatic changes of like what is happening here is when I went to the northern district which was closer to home, which was always my goal, to get closer to home so I could drive. And I got assigned this area called Mount Washington. And it's this really rich upper class. And I drove around that day, like looking at my map, like, where am I? I don't understand what's happening here. Like I was taking pictures. I was like, yo, I'm on Cross Country Boulevard. There's a stream. And this thing says I'm in Baltimore. Like what is happening? And so that was my first time I, I really was exposed to what is known there as the white L where all the redlining resources ended up being collected in, and there's an entirely different Baltimore. It was, mm. if you're familiar with DC, it was when you crossed the tracks, which are literal mm. tracks in DC. It was the first time I had crossed the tracks into the, the white area, mm. and it was a huge shock. Right. And then I realized like, I couldn't do anything there, and I still had to get stats. So I would go to the poor black neighborhoods to get my arrests. So you still have to get stats, even if you're in a low crime neighborhood? Happens, yeah. But, and how you're not even in a low crime area. Wait a minute. What's a low obvious crime well, how, Yeah, that's right. You could, like, you're not going <laughs> to break into there. someone's right. house and bust them for they have insider resources trading. They protect their crime. Yeah, right. yeah. So you go so, to places, places that don't have resources to mask their crimes. Right. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, through you know, lawyers or different types of crimes. A house, or, property, yeah, fences, yeah, trees. Right, right. So, yeah, but if you, I mean, just from a policing perspective, you still need the stats even though you're in a neighborhood. Yeah, I was getting in trouble. So. Well, but they don't want you arresting the kids like, of so powerful, my, rich white people, do they? Of course not. So who are you, how are you supposed to get your stats? You leave and you go to the poor black neighborhood. Really? Of course. So even though you're assigned to this neighborhood, they want you to actually leave. They want me to get stats, and those stats cannot come from that area. So where do they come from? So if a call comes in and you're like, hey, sorry, I'm five miles away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, be busy, cool. I would be busy processing an arrest for somebody really? in wow. uh, Park Heights 
when I should have been actively patrolling my area in Mount Washington. Right. Absolutely. Right. Sure. Because I'm an employee and I respond to what I'm incentivized right. to do. Right. Oh, interesting. I didn't know it worked that way. I would have thought they'd want you right. there. But my whole goal, especially when I became a supervisor at first, before I really got into trying to fix it, it was if I gave them what they wanted, the upper command, then I could protect my people by being a shield. So I had my squad tuned to be the most productive stat getting squad mm. in the city. We were always one of the top three squads right. for getting stats. And what that meant was because we locked all these people up and we got them what they wanted, I could protect the department from treating my people really badly. Right. Because I was seen as this thing that they didn't want to give up because if right. they pissed me off, then they wouldn't get their numbers. It's kind of like, you ever see Apocalypse Now? I mean, I have. But I remember it. Yeah. Well, it's based on a book by Joseph Conrad called Heart of Darkness which is really interesting. It, it's a great, great novel uh, that's set in the Belgian Congo. And there's this guy, Kurtz, who went all the way up the river and he was sending back more ivory than anyone else. And at first the company was like, hey, good job, Kurtz. I don't know what he's doing up there, but it's really great. You know, the stats are really good. The results are great. And then they start to hear rumors that he's um, convinced the Africans that he's a god and he's like doing human sacrifice and all this crazy <laughs> shit. And then there's, they start to get uncomfortable about it. And, you know, so the same thing in the Vietnam War. Like Kurtz, the same character, was uh, using um, unconventional methods. Well, hopefully now society is getting a little uncomfortable uh-huh. with those methods we're using right. to gather our stats. You think so? Course. People are starting to realize that they're empty stats. Well, empty in the sense that it's... Okay, here's, here's the thing. In the 80s... Uh, Reagan administration, they started minimum mandatory sentencing. They started the big prison, you know, building thing. Prison population started going up really quickly. Crime was crime rates were quite high then. Like I lived in New York City before pre Giuliani. You know, there's a lot of nasty shit going on. Then you have the crime rates start going down and. Uh, prison rates continue to go up, even though crime rates are going down because of the incentives you're talking about, private prisons, guaranteed occupancy rates, all this kind of shit. But but there is a chicken egg situation where, no? Okay, that's what I wanted to get to, because to me, it's what I want to believe is that the crime rates went down because there are fewer teenage males, because leaded gasoline was outlawed in the 70s, and it's been proven that lead uh, exhaust affects brain function and, and causes violent behavior. So I want to believe that, but there is the argument, no, the crime rate went down because we took all the violent people and put them in prison. It's correlation versus causation. I mean, Norway right. has the smallest prison population in the entire world, right. and they have one of the lowest crime rates in the entire world. Right. So if you are any bit of a scientist... That's out the window. Your theory's toast. So, well, okay, but uh, that's we have, a static rate. I'm talking about changing. No, they do have a change. Dynamic. They lowered. They're lowering. They get less and less prisoners over time because they have an active policy right. to, to, to help prevent recidivism yeah. and treat prisoners differently. Their prisons so we, are great. We have yeah. plenty of examples of effective uh, safety, public right. safety, right. that doesn't involve mass incarceration. Right. We literally have every other country to yeah. look at. Yeah. So they're all doing it better than we are. We do it worse than anybody else. Yeah. And then so we're going to make these correlations and causations. So let's separate those variables so people can get that down. So, yeah, we did have uh, mass incarceration going up with the, the start of a really deep drug war and a, a diving down into an adversarial system of prosecution right. where the prosecutors got a lot of incentivization themselves to go ahead and do these big cases. Now, that happened as crime was going down. 
But the biggest correlate and the only known direct correlate we have to crime reduction is lead poisoning. And so mm. what happened in 1972 is the CAFE standards went into effect and there is a 20 to 22 year delay on the effect of um, lead poisoning effects. So what lead poisoning does is it, it affects your uh, cerebral cortex and your cerebral cortex acts like uh, a lid on your can of ape. So you're an inner ape inside, all those survival instincts are still remaining mm. in there, and the cerebral cortex is like a filter or a lid on mm. that. So it do, you can't regulate the ape as well when you've been uh, lead poisoned. Right. So right. what ends up happening is... And sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but we should also note that a lot of the lead poisoning came from paint, which was removed from upper class areas very quickly and remained in lower class housing. We'll get that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so the CAFE standards in 1972 end up with a 20 to 22 year delay. Mm. And then that delay is what you see in the 90s finally taking effect. That is why it's the national reduction for your theory, or anyone's theory, yes, I use you too generally. Yeah, that's to, fine. To, to have any validity, that would mean that policing around the entire country was being done the exact same way. That's right. preposterous. Right. Uh, so right. you had policing that was done a thousand different ways in a thousand different environments, and yet there was a national trend of reduction, which means there had to be a national thing that was taking place, which was the cafe reduction. Right. Now, how do we prove right. that even further? Again, the mistake between broken windows and the crime reduction in New York. The crime reduction in New York in the late 90s or the uh, mid 2000s or 2010s was the public health department in New York's work 22 years before then, the best public health department in the entire country, which lowered the lead levels in New York to the lowest of any state or any city in this entire country. No surprise, New York City is now the safest city in this entire country. So you attribute that all to the, the lead? The number one correlate. So we have other factors, and we like to point out things like poverty. Poverty is not a strong correlate to crime. Really? We have plenty of extremely poor countries in this world that are very safe. Hmm. Uh, it, it is it is an influencer. It can be a catalyst. It can be an indicator of other sources of marginalization. Right. It is an oppressed class. It is a hurdle, but it is not a very strong correlate. Now, you said we have... Two things I want to jump back to. Broken windows. You mentioned the phrase broken windows. People might not know what we're talking about. Broken windows policing is really what I'm talking right, about. Right. So broken windows is a social philosophy is that if you have a building and it has 10 windows, if one window gets broken, it is more likely to, that one more window were broken and another window get broken exponentially. So if you fix the first one very quickly then you will reduce the, the chances of any other windows being right. broken. So this philosophy has been used to justify like nitpicky policing. Minor arresting. Yeah, so yeah arresting people from another for graffiti field. or something. Because like if, you, if there's, they, they tag a building, then they feel comfortable selling drugs. Then, they, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. So pull the weeds before they get too big is sort of. Which the doesn't work. I mean, there was a, this is the entire idea that punishment or threat of punishment or that crime is rational choice theory. This is all stuff that's gone out the window, and, but we're still going and using old 
made up ideas mm. of what policing should be. Oakland hired a police chief who believes in broken windows, which was scientifically disproven a decade ago. There's mm. tons and tons of literature on it. Um, I just put up a meta-analysis the other day of 129 studies that showed that there is a no correlate whatsoever between punishments and crime deterrent. Like, it is not a thing. We have to entirely change our thinking of what criminal justice is because our criminal justice is those three things that I pointed out about policing. So there is no way to continue to change and mask what you're doing. What you end up doing is just put a, pr a friendly face on the fascism that you're executing, where we, we think that there's some kind of justice in that we would get Freddie Gray to go into that inhumane prison system more safely. So better, you know, let's make sure we don't kill him in the van. We'll just right. kill him slowly through the uh, this legal slavery that we still have through the 13th right. Amendment. Right, right. Uh, let me challenge something you said there. Um, poverty is not correlated to crime. Not a strong correlate. Not a strong correlate. And you said, if I remember correctly, you said there are poor countries with very low crime rates. Yeah. But in a poor country, I, I don't know, you're thinking, what, Cuba? What? I mean, Cuba's going, on, but we have a lot of poor pockets. Like, I mean, crime is not exponentially high in in the poor areas of norway they're not exponentially high in the poor areas of sweden right but see the point this is where i was going to challenge you it's a global context and you have to throw in the other variables well and we you've have. got you've got inequality so if you you know a poor country let's say a country like uh, india uh, i've spent a bunch of time in india mm -hmm. and i feel very safer in india than i do in most of the u.s right but it i think it's it's part of it is um, the sort of range of inequality, right? Inequality is so not if, poverty. So yes, well, that's it. If the range of inequality poor, is a stronger correlate. Right. 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 Okay. So when the when you're being oppressed and you see that people around you who right. are just like you in reality have a lot more for no reason, then that right. is that is a disparity in equality. Right. And so we're talking about relative poverty versus poverty of a sure, country. Sure, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally different things. Um, and then what, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, Norway, you know, a place like that. You know, you said the poor parts of Norway, but the poor parts of Norway, people have access to health care and education and, you know, mother other vacation. Yeah. Right. So environmental so poisoning yeah. is my biggest factor. That means all of those other things like so lead poisoning when we were getting into. So the main reason why you have lead poisoning in cities is because of the pipes. Because we got it out of the air, we got it out of the lead, the pipes that the remain, paint. we've cleaned up a lot of the paint yeah, yeah. at this point in time. But a lot of the pipes that remain are like the issue in Flint. It's, it's uh, pipes. Right, right, because right. when white flight occurred in a lot of these cities, they moved and did new construction. New construction used PVC pipes, uh, so then you're fine. Right. Um, and but, so the antiquated shit is just right. poor So people. we still do environmental poisoning to poor white people in West Virginia. And right. we still do it to redlined communities. And these communities are often environmental poisoning of the actual ground. That's what maintains a lot. So you have the pipes and the literal ground they're on. It was like, uh, like environmental environmental poisoning in West Virginia when they get all the water and all the coal mining in there right. and they trick them into fighting for their own environmental poisoning. It's fucking it's, crazy. It's the same kind of things that we're talking about in redlining of communities. So when in Baltimore they did things like you, black people couldn't buy houses in certain neighborhoods. Mm. And so the, the neighborhoods that ended up being clustered and redlined uh, were, were black communities and then of course they're going to cluster them into the worst areas where the environmental poisoning is so then that environmental poisoning has these long-ranging factors and what's our societal answer to that put more police there not right. actually fight the causation of the crime so right. we have to change everything to fight causations you pointed out earlier like police in other countries not being armed 
Yeah. And, and well, not the police, the, the, the populace. Okay, so the populace, yeah, yeah. that's a huge factor, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think we, we, I've made my gun control arguments, and I, we have to face them. But yeah, we're going to live... What, what are your gun control arguments? I think that the, the Second Amendment is a moot point in the fact that we can't understand it, and it's an old thing under a different reality. And if we were to re-envision it now, which is what the one brilliant thing that the Founding Fathers did is the ability to re-envision it with a new environmental standard. So, mm. does a hunter have a right to a gun? Yeah, of course. So, what do you need to hunt? A bolt-action rifle. That's it. Uh, do you have a right to home defense? Absolutely. So, that would be a shotgun. The 12-gauge shotgun is hands down the best home defense weapon that has ever existed or that we have at the moment. Our problem is handguns. We cannot have handguns on our streets where we can't determine who has a death stick in their pocket mm. and who doesn't. That is an environment that police uh, it influences police behavior to be jumpy and pull sure. the trigger. And it influences all of us to live in fear. That fear uh, gets codified into law. And now the, the officers are justified in their fear by the law. And that kind of sows it. You have training where you, you put this. They, they say there's no such thing as a routine car stop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely there is. 99.99999% of car stops happen completely routinely. Mm -hmm. uh, for us to focus on this extremely small percentage, we sow the fear so that percentage then grows, become, we become right. the instigating force of that because of our fear. Is, I mean, I, you've, you've done a lot of these stops, street stops, car stops, whatever. It, it, would it be accurate to say that if you pull over a car with, you know, three or four young black dudes in it versus three or four young white dudes. Three or four young white dudes in mom's Volvo, three or four young black dudes in a 78 Cadillac. Yes. Is it accurate to say it's much, much more likely that you're going to find a gun in the Cadillac? Is incredibly more likely that you're going to find the gun with the three, four white guys. Really? In New York, uh, look up the stats. They recently broke this down. Stop and frisk rates on African-American males was like 0.01%. And on white males, it was about 15%. Really? Because the prejudice was out. So they were actually looking for the signs of criminality versus the signs of just fishing. So what we do is all of our data wait, is Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Slow down. Go through that again because I got I to gotta get my okay, head so around Okay, so you have that. to look for the signs of criminality, right? So you're saying a random white dude walking down the street in Brooklyn is more likely to have a gun than a our random black dude? Our stats say that of who the police stop, a white male is vastly more likely to have a gun. I see, because they're not stopping a random white dude. They're Maybe stopping random would be my black guess. dudes. Right. So they're stopping black dudes just because they're black, whereas they're stopping a white dude because it looks like he's right. got a so gun in his pocket. neither of those stats are accurate. Right. We don't know what right. they mean. So and all police stats. Here, okay, so here's the thing I'm going to tell you that you're going to say what, and the audience is going to say right. what. <laughs> Every single person in criminal justice field is working off a of data that is complete nonsense. The entire field is shit. There is not a single police chief in this country that knows what they're doing. Not one. And that is because we do not have the information. We are a religion. Hmm. So our data is not who commits crimes. It is who do the police charge with crimes. Right. That is our variable. Right. We say that's crime. It is not crime. Right. That is an entirely different metric that we're judging. And that metric began with those slave patrols who gave the first citations to runaway slaves, sent them back into, back into slavery, and now that was your first stat. So your first stat was these citations for runaway slaves. 
And then we say, it's human nature to say, well, who commits crimes? Black people. Who does it? These people we've given citations to. We don't say, why do we give them citations? We say that they have citations. So then we end up today looking at 16 to 24-year-old black males constantly, where if you can get to a point where, yeah, is a 16 to 24-year-old black male in the city of Baltimore living in the Western District more likely to commit or be charged with committing a crime? Absolutely. And that is because of this unjust system that we have built up. The problem, what you got to see is that that individual from the moment he was born, unless he had lead poisoning from that moment, has no greater propensity to crime than you do. Mm. It is, you have to say, what did this person have to go through to arrive at this place? And those things are our enemies, not the outcome of those things. Right, right. So, so policing is symptomatic. It's like symptomatic medicine. It's treating symptoms. Only it's not symptoms. getting into the, right. the so causes of any of I, I use like a, a bank robbery all the time because it allows us to distance ourselves. But if you were in a bank when a bank got robbed and the police came in and started asking you questions. Now, in a global context, what we should be wanting then is that the next bank robbery, like so your daughter will then be less likely to be a victim of a bank robbery in the future. That should be our goal. I think we all understand that's our goal. But what we actually do is try to figure out all the details where we can exact the most revenge on this individual who went through all these things to arrive at this outcome. And what our response is, is more of the marginalizations and conditions which are... uh, increase the likelihood right. of the bank robbery occurring again. Right. So we have had crime reduction in America, not because of policing, but despite, despite. policing. We <laughs> know crazy. this because in areas like yeah. New York, when they rebelled against the Blasio and they stopped making enforcement, crime went down dramatically really? in the neighborhood was very popular. Huh. That is why rich white people don't mind the police. Because you know what the rich, what cops do in rich white neighborhoods? Fuck all. Yeah, nothing. They, right. they leave and look, look <laughs> for their stats elsewhere. Stats elsewhere. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, yeah. I mean, we know yeah. all these things, but we fight them for, like, that wall is what I'm fighting. Is yeah. why can we not cross this wall yeah. and extend empathy beyond our immediate circle? You know, let's get into that, into some of the deeper psychological things going on. Because you were, you, when you were you know, mid rant there about the 16 to 24 year old young black man is no more likely to commit crimes than anyone else. And, you know, definitely agree with that. Uh, but I think that there's a, a, you know, speaking as a sort of upper middle class white person, I think there's a, an unacknowledged guilt that you look at, you look at it and you say, man, if I live that life, if I were forced to be, to live in that neighborhood, if I got harassed by the cops all the time, if I had uh, uh, as little um, option, you know, for education and for getting a job, and if I were in that position, I'd be busting shit up. I'd be ripping people off. I'd be so fucking angry. And so I need someone to protect me against that because I'm scared of what I know. I'd be fucking angry if I were there. So... You know, and and I guess the whole point of what you're getting at is, yeah, then why don't we do something to alleviate the anger? But instead, what we're doing is trying to contain it. It's like a riot or a protest. Like the only reason those occur is because you won't listen to your people. And people who don't have anything to lose are the people who are going to fuck shit up. Of course. As they should be. I mean, as they should. That's revolution, right? That's all you can do. You're you're left without any other choice. You know, and and also you're talking about this sort of in like American 
unwillingness to acknowledge the, the data. And I deal with that all the time with sexuality, right? Like, you look, you're talking about uh, Sweden, Norway, Holland, Denmark. These countries, their approach to sex education is their eyes are open. Teenagers are going to have sex. You're going to have sex. Let's talk about it. Here are different types of sex. Here are different types of drugs. Here's what they do. Here's what they don't do. It's, it's about, um, what's the word, um, uh, damage reduction, harm reduction, harm, harm reduction, right? It's not about just say no. It's not about abstinence only. That's only America. America and the fucking Taliban are the only people who believe in that bullshit, you know? And so even within America, you look at New York State that has sex education programs, Louisiana that doesn't. Who's got the highest teen pregnancy Louisiana rates? Louisiana by a mile. Yeah, STD <laughs> transmission rates, Louisiana. You just look at the data. It's clear what works and what doesn't. But we don't give a fuck. No. Because we're scared of sex. We're scared of black people. And we want to punish them. We don't want them to no longer have a reason to be dangerous, we want to punish them. Yeah, we're vengeance-minded. And vengeance, I, don't mind, yeah. I don't mind a victim being vengeance-minded. Right. So that's, that's entirely understandable. Right. If somebody kills your daughter... But that's personal. Right, and you want to yeah. kill them, I'm, I'm comfortable with after you do kill them. If you got it to them before you did, we reduce your sentence in all reality. You right. know? Like you have right. these mitigating factors that come in. Right. But for us as state-sanctioned representatives right. to come in there vengeance-minded is preposterous. We, the goal of a, of a criminal justice system should be to protect society as a whole. That has nothing to do with how much we punish the person that did something. I mean... I, like if you get it down to its basics, I'm very happy with sending people that, that commit a murder and maybe we say, fine, you can't come into society forever again and you kind of outcast them like biblically or something. Right, right. And you put them in, give a state like, look, I was in North Dakota. I mean, there's a reason we gave it to, to the Native Americans. There's it's nothing there. <laughs> okay. So, so take North Dakota <laughs> yeah. and they can yeah. go to online school, get PhDs, yeah. contribute yeah. to the literature, build farms and contribute, re-contribute to society in some way, shape or form. We can do this in humane and productive manners, but yet we don't like pursue anything other than the vengeance because we, I feel like we won't look beyond those 150 people of our tribal mentality. Mm. And, and, and so what I've done in my policing solutions, I came up with a whole model called civilian-led policing that that gives you the framework for fixing this entire thing. And it's just about changing the incentives and disincentives to be something that you guide going forward and employees responding to it like any other employees do. So we mm. can do all of this if we would just look at the data and go for it. So what percentage, I mean, I, this is a possible question for you to answer, um, but based on you know your experience, what percentage of police do you think recognize that what they're doing isn't effective i think everyone in the drug war does hmm. um except jeff sessions well I, I don't they're not making the argument that it will be effective are they they're making the effective uh, yeah. the argument that this is what they want to do right um, you can't make the argument that's effective so i mean incentive wise do you think the drug war at this point is just self-perpetuating because of the money that people are making, the prisons and the prison guard union, and I mean, why we keep it going? Like, yes. I, I don't. Because again, look at the data. Portugal, the data is, Portugal, it, the data everything's clear, legal, but I feel everything's like we, better. So, I fundamentally, as my go-to is, we have, we we think in generations, 
and we think in borders and all those other social constructs. But all those constructs changed with the age of information. Right. And so I think we are in this budding up area between people who are living in the past, not adapting to the age of information, and the people who are. Hmm. Uh, that, that we generally see that in all that, the metrics as the baby boomers kind of screwing everybody up and pulling the ladder up behind them uh, for everything. Like, I mean, the people that are complaining uh, as a group about free college had free college. Right. The people that are complaining as a group about minimum wage had the equivalent of a $21 minimum wage. Clarence fucking uh, Thomas got into Yale or Harvard or wherever the fuck he was on affirmative action, and he's trying to, you know, he always votes against affirmative action. Right, so they pull up the ladder. And I think that has a lot to do with whether you're actually on which side of the fence of the age of information you're on. There's plenty mm. of 80-year-olds out there that have adapted to the internet and the age of information, and they're just as with everybody else and science-minded and fighting. Mm. So, but most of our people in power are in that lack of age of information. I mean, come on. Neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump understand how email works. Right. Email. Yeah. How can you run anything, anything, in 2017, if you don't understand how emails and servers work. Yeah. So well, he understands how Twitter works. <laughs> well, I, does he? I mean, he just understands <laughs> that people listen to it. It seems to, yeah. Like, so if yeah. we we're fighting that other side of this lack of age of information. So once we, I think once we get enough people or they die or whatever it is, then, then all of this stuff will get fixed. So what our jobs are now is just to push that faster and faster. So you, okay, now that, that's a hopeful perspective, but like, where's, where's the evidence for that? Because, I mean, if we're saying this is an American cultural problem, because it doesn't exist in Germany, it doesn't exist in, you know, Norway, Spain, whatever, then why should we think that this is just a generational problem? Because... 30 years ago in Sweden and Norway, they were still progressive. They were, they were, you know, they had humane prisons. They were looking at criminal justice. As far as I know, they were looking at criminal justice from the perspective of how do we reduce crime, not how do we fuck this guy over as bad as possible. Okay, you know? So as a scholar, I dismiss all the evidence from Norway and Sweden okay. because they are homogenous societies. Uh-huh. So I'll make these arguments as examples. Right. But I don't like their data when it comes to how police enact and being transferred over to us because Fair they come enough, from right. such a different route. Yeah, that's so true. it's very easy in homogenous societies, even in America, for policing to be very different. Yeah. So uh, when, when we, you got to look at the hypersegregated cities. So we have police that are in West Virginia in the most poor areas where a lot of crime is taking place, but those police are of that community and and i i mean as integration not Mm. as an occupying force right so they don't default to those prejudices against their own people that way when you get into mixed areas that that are heterogeneous and you have white cops and black cops against those oppressed classes that's when you see the encapsulation of excessive force come out Mm. so dramatically right so even here homogenous communities respond very differently right that's yeah i I agree with that i mean i throw out that swedish shit just because you raised it earlier but (laughs) but yeah you're right i mean it's 
it's not real dangerous to be a cop in Sweden. No. I so, I mean, yeah. what are they fearing when they pull over their car? Yeah. What are, what, you know, and it is people that look like them. So they don't have their prejudices and their biases right. kicking right. in because everyone yeah. is like them. Well, and also that gets back to what I was saying earlier when I was, I was delineating the three differences between American and Spanish policing. I said American policing is rule-based, law-based, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, and I think that's kind of necessary because we have so many people from different cultures here that the the overall society had to develop this sort of rule of law, the phrase that's always used, because no, we don't all know how to be American. Whereas in Spain, everybody knows how to be Spanish, right? You, there's just certain stuff that everybody knows because the country's been there for 800 years or whatever. So, you know, it's just this is how you eat. This is how you talk to a policeman. This is how you deal with this and that. It's not that it's always right, but it's predictable. You know how people are going to behave. And here, who the fuck knows, you know? Right. You have all those different influences coming in from where everybody comes from. I mean, even right. in L.A., a lot of these things here shock me, being an East Coaster, where right. it's just like, what are these people doing? Like, where did you even learn this from? There's a dramatically difference in a lot of subtle things about how people just respond to one another. Yeah. Or bumping into somebody in New York, if you stop to say sorry, then right. they're going to be irritated that you wasted their time right. to exactly. say sorry. Right. Whereas if you bump to somebody, by bumping to somebody, you know, in, in the true value hardware store, it'd be yelling at you. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's like you don't know where that's going to come from in America. So I do strongly believe that we have to codify yeah. all these things right. and put them into law. It's just that we have to make those laws be centered on protecting society and mutually benefiting all society. And the science says that you do that by uplifting and taking away all of those things that are the hurdles uh, of the, the oppressed communities, whether it is redlining or it's not having public services or it's being environmentally poisoned or it's being less likely to get hired for a resume or having police in your schools who end up giving citations or regressive taxes hurting them more or food deserts or lack of public health services. I mean, all these things that pile up, these are what those people are subjected to in redlined and mm. marginalized communities right. that we want to dismiss that we would have incredible problems with if they were in our back door if the people if there were a bunch of muslim iraqi looking cops protecting the cvs in your neighborhood uh, you would feel dramatically different and that's what it looks like to them right right sure so what's uh, getting back to your sort of biographical thing though what happened what happened? I mean, you were a rising star in the police force. You're a commander. You're making all these drug busts. You're, you know, one of the top heading, one of the top three units in the city. You're on a track to who knows what yeah, kind of success. Um, right. So what the fuck happened, man? I start to look at what we did. Uh-huh. And it became clear that our system was broken. And the people telling us to do these things were these commanders, this command staff, and these politicians who bore no repercussions. So I kind of saw it myopically at first, and uh, one of of the big realizations was uh, I got assigned to the medical unit uh, to oversee all, all the medical stuff after I pissed everybody off and wrote that book. But that was just a professionalism, and I understood that. So you just did that on your own? Right. Well, the, uh, some of the other supervisors like covered for me when I was at work a little bit, so I could get some work done there, and sat there on our own. It took two years to do it. You published it as a book? or yeah, was it's on it... Amazon. Really? It What's it called? Uh, the Police Leadership Association Guide. I don't, I don't remember. Like, I, mean, <laughs> I wrote it years ago. Somebody can look it up. I don't, I don't pitch it, you know? Uh-huh. If you want to know how to do policing properly, that's great, but it's 
properly under this system. Right. And I have no desire yeah. for and the system now you've to moved go beyond any the further. System. Right. right. So um, what I saw in that unit was that I got access to the roster for the whole police department. And we're in a, a police department that's majority black. And that's the way I saw it. But the officers were like 60% black. And I was like, that's weird. And then I noticed the sergeants were like 50% black. So I started getting into the records. And you see that each rank you go up, your black percentage drops and drops mm. and drops until you get to the very top right. where they throw in their tokens. Right. And I was like, man, this is really messed up. Uh, there, there's something underlying here. And so you get back and you find they had, they had promotion uh, court cases that, that ended up, the black officers ended up rallying together to get. You see that black officers are punished more harshly in all their cases. So if there's an IID case of a, an excessive force, the black cops have a disproportionate punishment than the white cops for mm. the exact same transgressions. Mm. They get kicked out on medical issues more easily. They get all these fines. They're not in these units. So I was in a major case narcotics unit with, <laughs> with one black guy in it. Think about that. that make any How sense. many people in the unit? Six. Six and yeah. one black dude. Yeah, that right. doesn't make any sense. Right. right. Who's going to blend into the neighborhood better? Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm my ass. Right. So like, I kept seeing that everywhere. And that got me into like, all right, we have these management issues, our, dis our incentives and our disincentives are messed up. We have racism here we need to acknowledge. William Torbett, a black officer in Baltimore, got killed in a, in a friendly fire thing because they immediately, it was clear, they immediately st mistook him as mm -hmm. a black guy with right. a gun. So they, they shot and killed him. The Wire, The Wire, there was an episode of The Wire where that happened. This has happened a bunch of times. Yeah. I wonder if they were re referencing that. And so when I... Huh. Like those, like the police world didn't jump up and save those officers and stand up for them. And, and this right. was like baffling to me. Right. So uh, luckily I started uh, just fighting issues and kind of speaking up what I just thought I was just looking at the data and looking at professionalism and trying to be better and fix these things. I ended up getting injured myself and on I was, the job. Right. So I, I was like, that's great. You know, they wanted to kick me out. And it was like, yeah, you want to kick me out right now? This is great. I'm going to go into uh, being a scholar. I'm going to go get my PhD and I'll start writing all this stuff down and doing the actual research and putting it into the science because I'm just not getting heard inside. So how'd you get hurt? Uh, I got hurt from a desk ripping it out, ripping my shoulder out, having to move it. Um, and that was it. Just tore my ACL and uh -huh. the first, I mean, not ACL, tore my rotator cuff. Uh -huh. and the first time I did it, 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 I had a surgery and came back and then kept re-injuring it. Like it just kept going uh -huh. in. And so I would get, I was driving and it ripped out again, oh, just doing, doing coded and then right. arguing with people right. and it ripped out again. So they had to do another surgery and I didn't want to do it. And that's it. Then you leave. So let me ask you a question. I don't know if, if there's any legal jeopardy in you answering this question. So, mm -hmm. you know, who knows? I want to go to court. Don't worry. Uh, if you want to put me on the stand, then you got to no. write down what I say. <laughs> well, I mean, this is public, so yeah, I, yeah, I never yeah. want anyone no. to, you know, get in trouble. But when you were like seven years, I think you said you were on drug, drug detail. I did that. I did the major case or I did solely like plain clothes, drug looking like I am now drug work for a uh, year and a half. So you're like doing buys on the street? No, I mean, we had teams that would do buys. So there's a CI team that does buys. So I did surveillance, like would watch. And so you're watching and then watching, you come in and make a the big, arrest. Huge federal case, right? So what drugs? Heroin? I mean, it's what? mostly heroin, but right. it's Baltimore. Baltimore is always going to be mostly heroin, but you have some right. crack and cocaine sprinkled throughout. Right. Do you ever use those? Drugs? No. You've never you've never tried heroin, never no, not heroin. I am smoke LSD, weed? cannabis, 
Mushrooms, that's it. Yeah, you're, you're no dead alcohol. Head. Yeah, no alcohol either? <laughs> mushrooms, cannabis. When was the first time you, you did uh, mushrooms or LSD? Oh, 13 maybe? Oh, as 14? a kid. Sure. So well before you're arresting people for drugs, you had already used drugs and learned something from them, pres- presumably. I mean, I would hope. I think my strongest influence was Zach De La Roca. Was what? Zach De La Roca. Zach De La Roca, who's that? The lead singer of Raging Against Machine. Oh, yeah. I sorry. think that was my earliest revolutionary influence. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because I'm partial to the same class of drugs, you know, the stuff where you learn something, not where you're just trying to hide shit or, you know, keep it down. Yeah, I'm not interested in numbing anything. Yeah, so. yeah. I'm just wondering what that's, what that's like to, you know, to person. I mean, I think about this with, uh, you know, uh, Obama, you know, in his that memoir. Me off so like, bad. yeah, I did a little toot, you know. And then locked up thousands and thousands exactly. of people just like him. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, like, how do you deal with that on a personal level? I don't level? think I truly acknowledged it until a longer time. Like, maybe I bought into, like, that those things were ultimately dangerous and people shouldn't do them. Mm. I mean, I didn't know the science. I only yeah. know the propaganda that's, right. that, that culture teaches you. And if you go talk to anybody's grandma right now, you'll probably to, get an idea of what I was hearing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but did you did you bust anyone for weed? And you're like, fuck, I Well, I mean, weed. I wasn't big on busting people for minor possession. Right. Uh, I was in a narcotics unit because I was going after the dealers. Right. I didn't want to go after users. Right. Users just get caught up. But in even a dealer, even if you had a trunk load of weed, you're not, you're not going to kill anybody. Yeah, I realize you know? that now. Yeah. That, that's easy to say in retrospect. Yeah. Like, yeah. You had the information. Yeah. You know, I had to yeah. learn it the hard way. Yeah. And I mean, of course you're incentivized though. You're being myopic. Right. So, I mean, of course there are times where somebody committed a minor offense and I wanted to have overtime. Mm. So you lock them up right. because you get overtime for that. This right. is what you're incentivized to do. Right. One of my biggest gripes is that I was, my, my actions were clearly extremely racist. Um, I was uh, an occupying force, did not do anything to improve those neighborhoods. Yeah. And the bottom line was is that everybody paid for it, told me to do it, and it was all 100% legal. Yeah, and shake your hand after. Right. And Good call job. me and say, great job. And still... Yeah. Like, I feel awkward when people say, thank you for your service. It's like, thank me for being a manipulated young child who was trained to kill brown people for absolutely no fucking reason overseas. Like, what did you just thank me for? Right. for? But mm-hmm. they're thanking me because they believe the nationalistic propaganda that somehow uh, our, our, our children, uh, our sons and daughters and cousins that are in the desert right now risking their lives and getting killed or somehow protecting our freedom. There is not even a damn line of logic that comes back to our freedom, but we've been sewn into that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, one of my favorite quotes, people listen to this podcast and go, oh, fuck, he's going to say it again. But I am. It's one of my favorite. It's an interview with a coach. I think it was a football coach. I don't know. And they said to him, so what's the secret to being a great coach? And he said, you have to be smart enough to understand the game, but not smart enough to realize how little it all matters. And it seems like your, your flaw is that you were too smart. You understood the game, but then you kept thinking, and then you started recognizing how little it all mattered. Uh, like, so I have the same goal. You know, I want harm reduction. 
Oh yeah, drugs. No, I'm, I, I'm just saying that yeah. the limited game you so were. That's in. what I'm pursuing. I'm yeah. pursuing what does the data say right. to get us to those outcomes we want. Right. Well, the data says it's not what we're doing. Right. So, even so, no, so I don't know where my perspective. But do comes we from. really want those outcomes? Or this is what I was getting to earlier. Do we, we, whatever we is, really want to just keep doing what we're doing because we are making money on it? I think that's our instinct. Because that all happens in the background. Those things we don't mean to do. A lot of those things are unintended consequences of well-intended thoughts, right? Mm. So like the the crack and cocaine disparity, we put a malevolent intent to that. And there's not a malevolent intent to that. They were going after mid-level dealers. And so mid-level dealers of cocaine were white dudes who had resources and were, were, drove airplanes and distributed massive loads. So a, mid-income, a mid-level dealer on cocaine was somebody with all kinds of resources you, that end up would say mid-level would have five pounds of cocaine on them. But a mid-level dealer for crack was a whole different paradigm. And because those people didn't have resources, they didn't have airplanes, they couldn't stay away from, from the, 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 get big quantities of drugs at a time, the mid-level dealer on crack was a much lower quantity. So their initial thought was go off of mid-level dealers, not putting in the entire global context of what that would mean to who would be affected by that decision. Hmm. That's interesting. So you're saying... Just to explain to people what we're talking about here, the the minimum mandatory sentencing laws that came into effect in the 80s that said judges couldn't decide on sentencing anymore. If you have five pounds of cocaine, cocaine, you get 10 years. If you have, you know, two pounds, you get five years, et cetera. Uh, The equivalent amount of crack got much higher sentences. Right. So five pounds of crack, you go for 20. Oh, you would be gone for life. Forever. If you had five yeah. pounds of crack. That's yes. a lot of crack. Um, and you're saying it's not because the legislators looked at it and said black people use crack, white people use coke, let's make the crack more... Uh, they said 10 years for mid-level Mid-level. Dealers. And you're saying the mid-level is just different in the cocaine world versus the crack world. Because of all of our other biases. Right. And, and that's interesting. That in. That's something I've never, you just made me think something totally new. I never looked at it that way before. Well, I, I mean, a lot of people go in with good intentions. So that's, that's why we're sitting at this thing where we want to hero worship Obama. Right. As a Because we're juxtaposing him against the orange guy. Right. But the thing is, is, no matter how good the individual is yeah. at the, that's running the system, right. they are running this system and right. their outcomes will be negative and right. will be bad. And in that case, Obama is really no different from the neighborhood cop. He's not running the system. He's in the system. He's bought Absolutely. into it. He's that's where his power is from. Right. So the cop, the same right. thing. They're deeply invested in this right. power that they get from right. So, uh, I mean, this is all really fascinating stuff. And I'm I'm really glad that uh, we had a chance to talk about this because, you know, this is exactly how I think about drugs, how I think about sex, how I think about, you know, militarism, everything. I'm I'm medicine. You know, the the American system is all about treating symptoms, make a bunch of money, extract. You know, it's not about solving the health problems. It's about because policing is America at its worst. Like mm. you said earlier, the mm. criminals at their worst element. Right. Then you are seeing that that whole expression of America come together in its purest 
most because when you're high stressed and it really comes down to it, you got to make those decisions. Yeah. Then that is where our decision base is lies in. So if you want to understand America, just understand our policing. Right. Right. So on a practical level, because people don't get a chance to to hang out and talk with uh, ex cops very often, who are like sort of now you know open minded and all this. Do you have any advice for people? What do you tell your friends? Uh, you I don't get, have any friends. You, you don't have any friends? <laughs> you need new friends. You know. I have new friends. You, you don't have friends. any of them left well, I that, imagine that from before. Among the police force, you're probably not super popular. Uh, I'm probably super popular. That would be a bad argument to use. Popular just means I know who I am. Um, oh. so, well, liked would be a better, Infamous. A better measurement. Yeah. Um, in Baltimore, no one is surprised at all. Really? That I'm having these conversations. Really? No, I mean, they saw that coming long ago as an evolution even the people who were like he's a rising star look at the stats this guy's bringing in like i mean i was a they, rising star because of a drive for right. something that i don't think surprises them and so they're not surprised that you sort of flopped out of the pond and I, I think a lot of officers agree with what i'm saying right by far and they want that that world too they want the ones that want to do good which are the vast majority mm-hmm. they want a system which enables them to be good they don't have a system which enables them to be good right. so that's why i've focus my efforts on building a system which enables them to be good. And that system of civilian-led policing isn't something that I get pushed back on. Uh, It's basic concepts rooted in scholarship with goals that cops actually want to do. Do you get a chance to talk to police departments about this, or are you persona non grata? I disrupt power. Right. So the officers are not my enemy. The command staff right. and the mayors, yeah, they want nothing right. to do with me. So when you were talking about policing being reactive and proactive, like the fire department kind of idea, that was your third thing. Mm. Is that a lot of these other departments in like Sweden and Norway are reactive policing. Right. Right. Well, these are kind of weird in America. Like in Baltimore, even if we had reactive policing, I'm not sure you'd see much of a difference because that 911 thing is going constantly and you have people... Um, in those neighborhoods that, that have gone in that age of information in the past that they're not a part of, where they still think the same way that locking those drug dealers up is the answer. So members of the community call all the time wanting cops to go after these kids on the corners, and uh, half the time I have to dismiss the calls because I know that kid, and that kid is not a drug dealer. They don't even know what drug dealing looks like. Mm. So that, that is one element that I, I still kind of a push away because it's, the problem is, is we're being proactive, right. but we're being proactive serving that mayor. Right. And those are four to eight year goals. So they are protecting and serving. They're protecting and serving the command staff and the mayor because that's who's controlling them. What I do in civilian policing in my model is putting a board of an equitable representation of the population and putting them on top and doing the guidance, like similar to how business, uh, any publicly offered company is structured. You have a board on top and you direct right. a CEO and the CEO is, is, is responsible for carrying out what you want, but the guidance comes from the actual people. Is that it, would be an alignment of the incentives and, and disincentives. You would then right. align your incomes and outcomes. Isn't that essentially what electoral politics is supposed to be doing? Right. The voters are like the shareholders. So in one of the first Joe Rogan episode that I did a few years ago, we kind of got into this a little bit when I was a little bit more naive and didn't have as much research. I would say that the biggest, the two biggest things were the get money out of politics and to end the drug war. Mm. So, I mean, I would still say those are the two biggest changes we could do immediately, Mm. but that still would keep in the system. And, And Anything that's mitigating the system, I, th- I think, is the wrong way of thinking. But it would, if you got money out of politics, it would allow necessary changes to happen to the system. Theoretically, yeah, Theoretically, it would, it would yeah. allow those politicians to actually represent you. And you let you let fucking poor people vote. 
stop, you make it a voting day, a national holiday, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, there's all the sort of intentional ways that they stop poor. Sure. So that's why I want voting. to. I, I want to step outside that. Yeah. So I want to. I want the people to actually be in control of their police department, so they don't have to worry about whether the feds deter want to say police have to cooperate with ICE. If we are localized and we're not dealing with the politicians, then we aren't listening to ICE. Mm. We will turn our police against ICE because it's right. our our army now. Uh, what? Who was it? It wasn't. Was it Bloomberg? Bloomberg. He said that the was proudly announcing that he had the seventh largest army in the entire world. And he is absolutely correct. Mm. It is the personal army of every single one of their mayors used to achieve their goals. And often their goals are immediate crime reduction. And so the thing is, is immediate crime reduction can occur if you use totalitarian means. Right. And you, you just lock everybody up and you throw them away. Sure, you will get those crime numbers down. But you're sowing the seeds right. for crime numbers to go up yeah. when those people are released from prison. Or the children of those people and the ripples you send throughout right. the community. Right. So you end up actually making it worse. So that, that is a contributing factor to why you see an Orwellian escalation of policing to be more militarized, mm. bigger and badder. Right. Is that that is the kind of paradigm we have set. In. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, we haven't really even spoken much about the way prison creates this culture of crime. You know, people get thrown into prison for a bad decision come out 10 years later and they've got no job opportunities and the only thing their only contacts and people who give a shit about them are the criminals for god's sakes everybody read the story of khalif browder um i don't know he was charged as a young kid with stealing a book bag a book bag that ends up he never even stole that he that that was his the entire time but that's what he was charged with ended up going to rikers and being held for years and years without a without a a, a case ended up getting in fights and people messing with him there he ends up committing suicide a few years later uh, from all the trauma that he experienced in prison and never did a damn thing wrong right just right. that's how traumatic that experience is. Yeah. And then when people get out of there, after we've dehumanized them for years and years and years, they come out and we want to know why they don't act human. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. Um, so what are you doing now, man? I know you're an activist. You are one of the people who started the whole Vets Against Sanding Rock thing. Yeah, I guess, so those are the three biggest things I have. I kind of hope that one day I can successfully figure out how to be like the Neil deGrasse Tyson of police science to communicate to people uh, what is important about this, how we need to look at it, to get everybody to understand. So I've kind of been doing that media, getting out there and trying to do the educational aspect. Right, right. Wrapping up my PhD now. and uh, In management. Management education. Right. And the, uh, run, the president of Veterans Stand, which is the nonprofit that formulated it, after doing the veterans from Standing Rock uh -huh. and going around talking about civilian-led policing, which they're recruiting models for. So I developed an entire model that anybody can, can look up. It's called civilian-led policing, uh, civilianledpolicing.org. And there's a group of, of uh, extremely dedicated people that are running that, trying to get that actually implemented in cities to start beginning the process of reforming policing that way. So people are looking at your work you're not welcome to come in and talk to the cops, but it, your work is getting in there somehow? Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess, whether I'd like it or not, somebody has to push 
the envelope right. so that they'll accept something behind me. Right. And right now that seems to be my role. Eventually right. people want to end up talking to me about how to do it. I need right. to be there to make right. sure it gets implemented right. But it's probably other people that should be selling this. I shouldn't be selling my own, own idea anyway. Mm. As a scholar, I want those ideas to constantly be challenged and I want you to rip it apart. Mm. I don't want to sell it. Like my idea is not to sell my theory. As a scholar, my right. idea is that you look at it and you try to screw it up so I can improve it. Right. So I, I'm not here trying to sell you that this is the answer. I'm trying to sell you the answer that what we're doing is completely wrong and even stopping would be better. And right. here's a potential replacement we have. But we need to have a mentality of looking for new replacements not looking for our new panacea. Right, right. So you're doing the the Standing Rock thing. What's the name of the organization? Veterans for Standing Rock. Veterans uh, for Standing Rock. how it started at first. Right. And then we evolved to just Veterans Stand because we wanted to build something that would be broader. It right. Seemed like there was this running concept there when we were in Standing Rock that a lot of people that responded, they wanted to be of the actual service that they thought they were doing. And, and one of the reasons why I can speak so confidently that vets do get that they're not serving the people anymore is that was like the big common theme is we want to serve our people. Yeah. We have this drive, but we don't have a means to do it. And they saw this as a means where they could do it for that moment. Um, that was one of the most effective pieces of resistance activism I've seen in years in the US. I mean, I didn't so know far you the at only the time. One that was successful this year, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Um, for at least halting it. But it was so fast. Yeah. I mean, within a week of when I read that, that, you know, vets were mobilizing to go to Standing Rock. And it was cold as fuck. It was unbelievable. It was it like was midwinter it. when, you know, the powers that be were banking on the fact that nobody was, you know, mm-hmm. they, they were going to be dribbling away from there. Nobody was going to be moving toward it. And when that thing happened, and then it was like, what, a week that they said, oh, Obama was like, yeah, we're going to. Yeah, I, I didn't even get on site. I was, oh, you, I was, there's a video of me just when enough I found out, I'm going. right? So yeah. I found out like, I don't know, maybe a day before, maybe, yeah. maybe 12 hours before. Yeah. And so there's a video out there of me finding out when I was driving down the street, I hadn't even gotten to camp yet. Right. <laughs> so right. yeah, they definitely jumped on it and realized that once everybody started showing up, they were highly effective. Yeah. Now, what the, a huge problem that happened there is that I had 2,000 to 4,000 people show up looking for a fight when the opponent didn't show up. Mm. And during that exchange and that difficulty in the middle of the blizzard, which was an epic blizzard, it was unbelievably cold, uh, the amount of post-traumatic stress that affects our soldiers, veterans, is something I dramatically underestimated. Mm. And probably the biggest lesson I have coming out of that is the two of us that that are left at the top, me and Anthony Diggs, is we have to address that issue. The entire purpose of this, where we were going, is we want we have a tour right now, Advanced Warp Tour, going around all these cities, uh, trying to speak to people with different messages, connecting vets, connecting police departments. And that our thinking when we formulated that was that what we need to do is we need to get issues for uh, these vets to find at their homes. We don't want to mobilize them. That's one, one thing we don't want to do. We want them to organize locally, mm. which is the harder thing and that we need to take place. Right. So we got to get these guys all wrapped up together and to fight local issues. So how do we tell them to do that? We don't want them to be white saviors. We want them to build stages for other people's voices to be heard, uplift mm. other people, don't be the stars. Mm. So we decided to build a literal stage and, and, that anybody can come perform on and get their voices heard going through a long attached to the Vans Warp Tour. Right. Uh, but we need to address this post-traumatic stress issue before I think we can really push 
to have our people ever be mobilized yeah. again. Yeah. And so that's why we're leading into cannabis treatment for post-traumatic stress with cops and with law enforcement, I mean, with, with veterans, and trying to do a, a, a program right now for a, a proof of concept to get them to have training, education, experimentation with doctors, and we would love to integrate eventually some psychedelic aspects. Right. But right now, we're, we're focusing on the safe route. We have some yeah. NFL players involved. We have a bunch of connections coming in to make that work. So we have to treat our people and get our, them healthy and get our, all of us healthy before we can move on, right. I think, to really trying to mobilize acti- activism. Right, right. Well, I'm going to put you in touch with these, uh, this Marine I just met last week yeah, who's, awesome. who's doing this thing. He's got... He's got a, a hookup with an ayahuasca church in Florida that has legal uh, permit to, to do this, and they give um, a discount to vets. Oh. So they've, they've got a whole sort of pipeline worked out with that. Um, where can people, is there anything you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered? No, I, I, um, when it comes to activism, we, I think we're getting in this kind of law where donors have fatigue, uh, the actual activism has fatigue. Yeah. And I really think that that's based around the fact that there's no goal and we don't have a unifying source. And mm. I don't want to tell you, uh, like, or pitch you to get around civilian led policing as your model, but for God's sakes, look at it and see that you can do it. And we don't need a lot of people to do these things. Like, you need right. 10,000 signatures in Baltimore. 14,000 in Albuquerque. So to do what? To, to put in a civilian-led police department and put, take over policing really? so that it becomes yours. Like on a referendum? Yes, yeah, so on referendums. Uh, and and, uh. and so you can do it with a radical mayor. You can do it in one election with one mayor that's willing to give up control of their personal army to you so you can start fighting the causes of it. Right. We can do all of these things if we just don't buy the narrative that we can't. And like that's what we're. But people think this is too hard. You can't. But you can go through the doors. You can knock on it. There are progressive towns like Austin that is having huge progressive strides. It's going under the radar. You're not going to hear about because mainstream media doesn't want to talk about that. Right. All these egos are involved in activism and and in media. Mm. So you don't want it. But you guys can all do this. Just look it up. Go to civilianlightpolicing.org. Volunteer. Take over and, and make these your taxes actually serve you and fight causes so that your kid isn't gunned down like Tamir Rice was. Right. You know, this, these are incredibly important things that save actual lives. Russia doesn't have fuck all to do with this and isn't going to save anyone's life shut the hell up about these distractions and focus on these issues that we really really have right all right thank you brother thank you that's really good
the fire and the fury at his command. Well, you don't have to worry if you hold on to Jesus' hand. We'll all be saved from Satan when the thunder rolls. You gotta keep the devil. enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more, or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun. I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design t-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design t-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett.
He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Dance into the ground.